You are listening to the Cancer from A to Z podcast with Dr. Rosalind Morell, Episode 7, Kidney Cancer with Dr. Ayanichi. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer from A to Z podcast, where we discuss the issues and topics related to a diagnosis of cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Rosalind Morell. These podcast episodes are intended for informational and educational purposes only and are not a substitute for medical treatment by a healthcare professional. They do not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. Please consult your doctor or other health professional with any questions you have regarding any medical conditions. Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Cancer from A to Z podcast. I'm so glad you could join me today. Today's episode is going to be really good. I think I say that on every episode, but it's really true. We have Dr. Sharad Ayanichi, a urologist from West Coast Urology with us today. And we're going to be talking about kidney cancer. And kidney cancer is not as common as maybe breast cancer or prostate cancer, but it's still a really important cancer to talk about. So I'm really excited to have him discuss that in more detail, and you'll hear us go into the different types of cancer, and he even has a really cool story to share regarding surgery. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Ayanichi. He is a magna cum laude graduate of UCLA, and he received his medical degree from New York Medical College, where he was awarded the Leonard Paul Worship MD Memorial Award. His general surgery and urology training were completed at St. Vincent's Manhattan and Westchester Medical Center. While in residency, he was recognized as an AUA Gerald P. Murphy Scholar and a Pfizer Scholar in Urology. Dr. Ayanichi is board certified by the American Board of Urology, and he is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and a member of the American Urological Association. He has authored numerous scientific papers and presented at international academic conferences, and he has volunteered to be a clinical assistant professor of urology at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine for more than 10 years. He loves to teach and has taught many residents in the field of urology, and he remains active in clinical trials. Currently, Dr. Ayanichi is a urologist at West Coast Urology and has been with that practice since 2004. He focuses on laser and minimally invasive surgery and has a particular interest and expertise in advanced endoscopic stone surgery and complex robotic kidney surgery, which he's actually going to kind of talk about during the episode. He's also active in state-of-the-art treatments for common urologic conditions such as benign prostatic hyperplasia, incontinence, erectile dysfunction, urologic cancers, vasectomy, microscopic surgery, and complex open surgery. So Dr. Ayanichi is a fabulous physician, and I'm really excited to have him on the show. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. So let's just get right to it. Okay. Thank you, Sherrod, so much for being here. I really appreciate you doing this interview with me. Today, we're going to talk about kidney cancer. So I, I'd like to start off by just finding out from you, you know, what made you go into urology? How did you pick urology? 
Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I feel like this is such a good session because a lot of what we do is taking care of patients, but also a lot of our responsibility is educating our patients. And I think this helps uh, patients kind of understand a little bit more about kidney cancer and other things that sort of we deal with uh, in the background to help them make their decisions. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, th- I think this is a great opportunity. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> I honestly didn't know I was going to do urology. I went to medical school in New York and I was doing my general surgery rotation and I, I really loved surgery. But uh, during that rotation, I got to cover and help in a couple of operations with the urology faculty and I just thought it was amazing. Mm-hmm. And I really thought that they could make an immediate impact for a lot of patients. If someone's got a kidney stone, you can really seriously relieve their pain almost instantly or someone who is not able to empty their bladder because of an enlarged prostate, you can make a quick impact and help them in that or someone with cancer, uh, equally with kidney cancer, prostate cancer, bladder cancer, testicular cancer, all of these things. Thankfully, in urology, we have so many good treatments now that uh, you really, the cure rates are quite high. And so we have the ability to help people. So I I thought the instant gratification was just great. And it's also the kind of field where you get to treat women, men, children. It's not really limited to one demographic. You could be in a big city or a small city. It's not a particular type of patient or age of patient. We treat people of all walks of life. So it's extremely gratifying. I didn't know that you trained in Westchester because I was born in Westchester. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I spent two years up in Valhalla in medical school, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. And then I did two more years in New York City for my rotations. And then I did six more years in New York for residency. And I spent part of that at Westchester and part of it at St. Vincent's and a couple of other facilities in the Bronx and elsewhere, Spanish Harlem. So I've got a really amazing, uh, well-rounded education. I think if you have the ability to train in New York City in, in medicine, uh, you get to really see a little bit of everything. Yeah, I can imagine. You probably saw quite a bit. And you've been here in Los Angeles since 2004? Yes. So I, I was actually from L.A. and I went to New York. I spent 10 years there for my training and I came back to L.A. where my family is. So I've been back and I've been at the same practice since 2004. Mm, okay. Going back to what you just said, you see quite a bit in your clinic, wide range of patients and diagnoses. So since today we're talking about kidney cancer, how prevalent is kidney cancer in terms of what you see in your clinic? Well, you know, I see a fair amount of it because I just get referrals from internists, other primary care physicians, patients seek me out, or even other urologists, or even some people within my own practice may send me a patient here and there. So But in general, you know, if you look at numbers in the United States, there are about 60,000 new cases of kidney cancer a year. And there are about 14,000 deaths, unfortunately, from kidney cancer per year. The survival rate is really around 74, 75%. But if you're able to treat it early on, meaning stage one or stage two, the survival rate or cure rate rather is 85 to 95%. So it could be quite effective in helping patients live a completely normal life as far as their longevity goes if it's just treated early enough. 
Right. And we know that the risk factors can include hypertension, obesity, smoking, race. Do you see that in terms of your patients who are, you know, diagnosed with kidney cancer, that they have those risk factors? You're exactly right. You know, African-Americans do have, unfortunately, a little bit higher risk of kidney cancer. So we do Mm -hmm. see that. Smoking is a huge one. Thankfully, we know that kidney cancer, we detect kidney cancer a lot more now than we did 20, 30, 40 years ago. And since the 70s, rates of kidney cancer have been rising. But that's really, I think, because we find it more. We're doing a lot more CT scans and ultrasounds, MRIs, and we may not be even looking for it. We're looking for something different, and we kind of accidentally find it. So the rates are a little bit higher. But the deaths have not been rising. In fact, they've been improving. And I think part of it is because of the whole anti-smoking campaign in the United States. People are just smoking a lot less. And that's been extremely helpful. And beyond that, we just have better treatments. So all of that has been extremely great. So in terms of when you find it, so you just mentioned that sometimes it's an incidental finding. Is that pretty common or are patients coming in symptomatic? It's pretty common. I think I would say most people find it sort of by accident. Occasionally, patients may have symptoms if it's a little bit further along or advanced. You know, if if you go back and look at the literature and the history of kidney cancer, if you look at, you know, when people were treating these in the 1940s, 50s, 60s without the use of CAT scans, people didn't really present until it was extremely late. And so they had something called the classic triad of kidney cancer, which was blood in the urine, a palpable mass, and pain, flank pain. Uh, nowadays, you know, the classic triad is seen in maybe less than 10 or less than 5% of patients mm. because most people don't really reach that stage. Most people come in far earlier before you can actually feel a big tumor kind of pushing on the side of their abdomen. So, but sometimes it's, like, I, like you said, accidentally found on a CT or an MRI, sometimes blood tests, you know, there's no actual tumor marker for kidney cancer yet, but... Right. You know, you look and see and something's not right, so you investigate further. Sometimes, you know, calcium levels or uh, blood count or liver function tests, kidney function tests, things like that are not exactly where you want them to be, so you investigate further and you find it. So those are the things. But the main symptom, I would say, is probably when it's quite advanced, blood in the urine is a major thing. That, that you know that something's going on, you definitely have to investigate Right, right. And so really, I mean, when people have blood in the urine, that should be something that they should be seeing their physicians for. Yeah. So it's not obviously always cancer of the kidney. You know, sometimes Mm -hmm. it could be a urine tract infection or a swollen prostate or kidney stone or even there are other cancers. You know, there's cancer of the ureter or bladder or urethra. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I mentioned urine tract infection. So could be a number of other things as well, but all of them should definitely be investigated. And what is, so if someone presents or you find it incidentally on imaging, what is your next step in terms of going about getting tissue or diagnosing kidney cancer? So there are certain things that we look for on imaging. If uh, you're able to get a CT scan with IV contrast, that would be, I think, the gold standard nowadays. MRI with contrast is another study. Although it's a little bit more expensive and time-consuming, CT scan has really come a long way in helping us find these. And there are certain features we look for. The contrast is important if the patient's able to tolerate it, if they have good enough kidney function to have IV contrast. Sort of the tumor sort of lights up and you can really see a good anatomy. And, you know, we look for the size of the tumor, the location of the tumor, 
where it is in relation to other parts of the kidney, like is it collect is it close to the collecting system where the urine drains out of the kidney, or is it close to the vessels that feed the kidney? All of these things uh, have implications as to what kind of treatment you can provide that patient. And you also want to make sure that you know you want to examine around the kidney as it's spread to the lymph nodes around the kidney or other structures or there. Always get a chest x-ray, for example. You want to check the lungs. If they have any pulmonary symptoms or if the chest x-ray is abnormal, you can get a CAT scan of the chest. You can get a bone scan if if they have any bone-related symptoms. Right. PET scan doesn't really have a role in kidney tumors as of yet, uh, mm-hmm. but the other tests are extremely helpful. And how do you go about doing a biopsy? What's the procedure? So biopsies are done generally by radiologists. An interventional radiologist can do it either under local anesthesia where they just inject a little lidocaine or sometimes sedation, or in extreme cases, they may have to put the patient to sleep. But it's done in a radiology suite. It's outpatient. So you don't really have to typically stay in the hospital. You tend to go home afterwards with a Band-Aid. It wasn't terribly popular for a long, long time. There were some concerns for a long time that, you know, if it looked like cancer, we would just remove it. And people thought that there was a risk of bleeding with the biopsy, there were risks of possibly spreading the cancer with the biopsy, or even missing the cancer altogether with the biopsy and not knowing that you have it. They've gotten a lot better with the biopsies, and I think those risks are extremely minimal and low. So we do biopsies more often nowadays, and they're, I would say, extremely safe. Mm-hmm. There are always small risks, of course, and that you should discuss if that's something that your doctor's recommended with your doctor and with your radiologist. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, if it really looks like a tumor that's cancerous and we know what the treatment is, we don't necessarily recommend a biopsy. The biopsy comes into play when, if the results of the biopsy would change the treatment. For example, let's say you're not sure if it's a tumor or cancer versus an abscess or an infection. Right. That instead mm-hmm. needs to be drained rather than removed. Or let's say you're not sure if it's lymphoma that's in the kidney rather than uh, cancer of the kidney, which should be treated with chemotherapy rather than surgery to remove. Or let's say you're not sure if it's a cancer that's spread to the kidney from other sites versus a primary kidney tumor. So those are reasons, for example, to do a biopsy. Another reason to do a biopsy nowadays, which is a little bit more common, is if you're going to treat that tumor with thermal ablation, and I think we'll get into that in a little bit in a few minutes, but if, you, right. if you're going to freeze or heat that t- tumor and destroy it, you may want a little tissue diagnosis just so you know what you're treating. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, I had a patient recently who had a mass on their kidney, but also diagnosed with prostate cancer. And so it was recommended by the urologist, go ahead and deal with the prostate cancer and then the renal mass would be taken care of lately. I mean, is it something where it's really urgent if it's seen? Let's say the patient's not having any symptoms, maybe related to infection or anything else going on. Is it an immediate emergency or is something like that to where you need to, you know, evaluate this and know what this is right away? Or can it be observed for a little while? Yeah, so... It's a great question, and sometimes we do observe it. We don't always remove tumors. First of all, you want to first see if you think it's cancerous or not, right? So there are some benign tumors as well in the kidney. About 80% of the tumors that we remove are cancerous, but about 20% of them are not. And so if, 
for example, a biopsy in that case would help us know that. And if you know that it's a benign tumor or even a cancerous tumor, but a slow growing one at that, that would be helpful. But generally speaking, they're not very fast growing. You know, these tumors tend to grow maybe two, three, four millimeter a year. And that usually gives enough time to take care of other more urgent medical issues and buy some time to treat it. Sometimes we don't treat them at all, even if they're cancerous. You know, if somebody's elderly or they have multiple medical problems or they're not really a good candidate to have a major operation or if they have, say, only a single kidney and operating part or all that kidney may result in dialysis, you know, or somebody who already has marginal kidney function, again, removing part of a kidney may result in dialysis, you may want to watch it. Mm-hmm. especially if it's small. So, you know, we know that if it's a stage 1A, so less than 4 centimeter or less than 3 centimeter, it may be safe to watch. Okay. So you look at the size of it and and kind of help with that determination, whether you can watch it or not. Yeah, size, symptoms, you know, if the patient's actively bleeding, yeah, then you can't really wait on that. Right. That's something that you may have to treat before the prostate cancer, you know. Right. So, uh, there are other things that go into it as well, but size is an important determination. Okay. And let's talk about types of kidney cancer. So there's clear cell, there's papillary, there's chromophobe. What do you see most often? Yeah, so renal cell carcinoma, which is the most common type of kidney cancer, has subtypes. And as you just said, clear cell, papillary, chromophobe. There are some other ones that are less common, extremely rare, in fact, but those are the most common ones. And I would say clear cell is the most common type. Mm -hmm. Papillary is probably the second. Chromophobe tends to be slow growing. They can grow actually quite large, but they don't tend to spread very widely as quickly as the other subtypes. Right. And then there are some other types, you know, there's something called medullary carcinoma, which you tend to see in patients with sickle cell trait. And Mm -hmm. those can be extremely aggressive. Mm -hmm. So there is different types. You know, the thing about kidney cancer is renal cell carcinoma, you can actually see in patients of all ages. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, uh, thankfully, it's rare in children, but you can actually see them in children as well. What's the youngest in terms of what you've seen? I've treated people in their early 30s. I haven't seen younger than that. Right. I think, but we're seeing more and more people in their 30s and 40s. Yeah. And, you know, when you find a young patient, they probably should have genetic counseling as well. Right, right. And that kind of is a nice little segue into the hereditary forms of kidney cancer. Do you see that a lot in terms of the hereditary form with them? I guess one of the most common is what, von Hippel-Lindau? Yeah, they're pretty rare, thankfully. I think about 5% of all cancers of the kidney are, are hereditary or familial types. Mm-hmm. So they're uncommon, but you see one now. there is tuberous sclerosis, there's some other ones. So when you see them, they tend to be younger, multifocal, they could be in both kidneys or multiple tumors in one kidney. Mm-hmm. And so you really want to treat them in what we call nephron sparing, mm-hmm. trying to save as much of the kidney as possible. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about treatment and what you specifically do? You know, there are basically four types of treatment. 
four categories that we could talk about. One is active surveillance, which mm-hmm. is we sort of touched on, and that's uh, maybe appropriate if the tumor is small. Less than two centimeter tumor would be an ideal candidate. Generally, less than four centimeter may be okay. And this is really for somebody who is either not a good surgical candidate, like we said, perhaps right. they're elderly or multiple medications or blood thinning medications, things like that. Right. Or somebody who, if you remove part of all of their kidney, they may end up needing dialysis. And so that's not desirable. So if it seems to be a low risk, then active surveillance may be possible. With the caveat that if we detect that it's growing, then we would intervene. And so, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, repeating an imaging study in three to six months going forward and seeing. Mm-hmm. And if the tumor tends to grow fast, then, you know, we have to have that conversation about how to treat it. And so what are the treatments? Well, uh, one type of treatment is thermal ablation. That means either heat or cold. Cryotherapy, which is a freezing of the tumor, or radiofrequency ablation, which is a heating of the tumor. There's another type called microwave treatment, which is a subtype of radiofrequency ablation. So... Basically, these can be done either under CT guidance, generally by the radiologist, or they can be done surgically with laparoscopic or robotic surgery, or even extreme cases open, although that's quite rare. The patient would essentially go to the radiology suite. The radiologist uh, can use local anesthetic or sedation, and under CT guidance, they pass a needle into where the tumor is, and they have a couple of cycles where they freeze it and thaw it and... uh, they do that a couple of times, and then, again, a Band-Aid, and the patient tends to go home the same day. Uh, this may be a good treatment, again, for somebody who's got a smaller tumor, generally less than 3 centimeter, sometimes up to 4, you know, but that's sort of... And we know that the results are acceptable, but they're not as good as removing the tumor. So you're talking about perhaps a 70-75% cure rate versus a 90-95% cure rate with surgical removal of the tumor. And so how do you determine who's appropriate for what if you're going to be doing ablative versus or cryotherapy? So again, if someone's not a good surgical candidate to undergo okay. a major operation, that's one got reason. Mm-hmm. Or two, if someone's got multiple tumors mm-hmm. or recurrent tumors and you don't want to keep reoperating on the same kidney because there's going to be a lot of scarring and risk of complications increases and risk of you having to remove the whole kidney increases every time you operate on it. Or if someone's got one of the familial type, like von Hepelinda that you mentioned. Right. And so you want to maybe kind of ablate these tumors because you know that they will probably form new tumors down the line. Mm-hmm. And you want to have the option of preserving as much of that kidney going forward all the time. I see. The other treatments are surgical. And, you know, I'm going to go on a little tangent here as a little bit of a student of history. Mm-hmm. When you uh, look at the history of surgery for the kidney, it's actually quite interesting look at the literature, first uh, partial nephrectomy, which was removing a tumor from the kidney, at least recorded in the literature, was in 1867 by, by somebody named Dr. Spiegelberg. Wow. Uh, and this was done by accident. He wasn't planning on removing part of the kidney. He mistakenly removed it when he was trying to operate on the liver. He actually did that a couple of times, in 1861 and again, again in 1867, and he published both of them. Uh-huh. The first time that somebody deliberately operated on a kidney to remove part of the kidney for cancer was a few years later in 1870 by somebody named Dr. Simon. Uh But it wasn't a common operation. It was very difficult, horrific complications, high risk of bleeding, high risk of fistula formation, urine fistula formation, Uh and uh, high risk of death. 
And so there were about 21 cases reported between 1901-1935, and it sort of died off. So if you look at the literature between 1937 and 1970, in the textbooks, there is no mention of partial nephrectomy as a treatment for kidney cancer. So what we do now in partial nephrectomy is really a modern treatment. Where I trained in New York Medical College, there was an old chairman of urology, Dr. George Nagamatsu, who in the 1940s and 50s was a very well-known urologist, a very talented surgeon. And in those times, he came up with an incision called the Nagamatsu incision. If you study it, it's a, it's a major incision, meaning that you would have to make a huge incision, dividing between the eighth and the ninth rib, going mm-hmm. through the abdomen, and then turning the incision up in the back and dividing the eighth, seventh, and sixth ribs and basically filling open the entire chest and abdomen in order to get to the kidney. So, you know, you have to realize in those days, there was no CT scan. They didn't know what they were walking into. These were not small two, three centimeter tumors that today we may watch or ablate with cryotherapy. They were walking into major, major tumors that may be invading the liver or other organs and they were ready for anything. I say this because I want to kind of give a sense of how far we've become. Nowadays, uh, you know, we're doing partial nephrectomies robotically. Let me preface that again with another kind of a personal story here. You know, I trained at a time where in the beginning part of my surgical training, we were doing a lot of open surgery. And towards the end of my surgical training, we were doing a lot of laparoscopic surgery. It was really a watershed time for surgery not only just urology, but surgery as a whole. And so people were doing a lot more minimally invasive laparoscopic surgery. So people who trained before my time were experts in open surgery. People who trained after me are experts in robotic and laparoscopic surgery. But rarely you find someone who's extremely comfortable doing both. And so I got lucky in the sense that I had major exposure to both uh, disciplines. And so I offer that to all my patients. If somebody needs a major operation for a very complicated tumor that requires an open pair of hands, then I'm available to do that. If somebody has a smaller tumor or less complex or something that can be treated minimally invasive, I'm available to do that as well. And so what we're talking about with minimally invasive is with the help of robotic technology nowadays in the United States, we're talking about the Da Vinci robot from Intuitive. You can make very tiny openings in the body, put the cameras inside, And the robot arms are placed inside the body and they're extensions of the surgeon's hands. And so the surgeon controls the arms of the robot and does the entire operation. And uh, we're able to remove these tumors with very little blood loss and most people go home the next day. So that's an excellent treatment again for a smaller tumor or a tumor that appears to be confined to the kidney. If it's very close to the vessels of the kidney or, or if it's too large, then that may not be possible. They may have mm-hmm. to remove the entire kidney. And so that's what a radical nephrectomy is, which is removing the entire kidney and anything else that may be involved along with it. So I think it's great that you were trained, you know, in both ways in terms of laparoscopic and open because that makes you, obviously if someone needs, you know, open surgery, you can do it. So I think that's fantastic. In terms of the blood loss and recovery for open versus laparoscopic, I would assume that, you know, laparoscopic is better recovery, less blood loss. What are the major differences, I guess, in terms of maybe what you see, I guess, really in terms of blood loss? I mean, you know, can can you minimize the blood loss with open surgery and can the patients go home just as quickly and 
Yeah, so, uh, yeah, you know, you're completely right. There are advantages with laparoscopic or robotic surgery. And uh, so blood loss could be very low. Incisions are a lot smaller. Pain after surgery tends to be less. People tend to be eating a little bit faster, walking around faster, going home faster, and getting back to their activities of daily living faster. So all of those things have been documented as advantages. But, you know, it is still an operation. And if you're going to have an operation like that, you definitely have to have a good discussion with your surgeon and get a full understanding. There are risks with any surgery, robotic surgery. Sometimes we're not able to complete robotically. If it's complicated, you may have to make an open incision. Sometimes there may be bleeding and blood transfusions may be necessary. Sometimes the equipment uh, may not work properly. You may have to make an open incision. That's quite rare. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you have to be ready for anything. So, but it has really changed the way we approach these tumors where I think people are getting back to their lives faster with less morbidity. One of the main complaints of open surgery, especially like a flank incision, is that uh, the muscles kind of get weak. It's a large incision. You can form a hernia or the muscles kind of pouch out. We call the flank bulge. So... There are cosmetic differences that last uh, beyond the immediate few weeks of post-operative period. So uh, there are even long-lasting effects that uh, are advantageous for robotic surgery. If the tumor has spread to the lymph nodes, are you still able to do it laparoscopically? Or is that once it gets outside of the kidney and it moves on to the lymph nodes, are you now having to do a different type of surgery and you can't do it laparoscopically? Or can you do it still? It depends. Uh, If they are still in the confines of the general area of the kidney, if the lymph nodes are very close to the major vessels that feed the kidney, it's still possible to do it laparoscopically or robotically. Of course, it's much more difficult and you need to have an experienced surgeon that is quite familiar with doing that, but it's possible with the understanding that during the operation, a decision may be made to make an open incision. Mm-hmm. It may not be possible to get it all out safely, and you, of course, want to remove all of the involved tissue because, after all, you're trying to you know, remove all the cancer. So if you don't feel during surgery with the robot it's not possible, then you may have to open it. But I think it's, it's, it's something that we can offer. Sometimes the tumor is extremely large. There are major lymph nodes that are seen that you just don't feel confident that you can remove robotically, or... There's something we call a tumor thrombus, where the tumor is kind of extending into the renal vein and even into the major vessels and fibrinae cava, things like that. Those are definitely cases you should just start off open, and uh, I think you'll get the best results that way. Mm-hmm. Now, if if it looks like it has spread significantly, I mean, so if there's lymph nodes, distant lymph nodes, or even organ involvements, if there is, for example, metastatic sites in the liver or lung or other places then surgery may not be the best option. There are different schools of thought. Some people feel that you can do an operation up front and then treat with chemotherapy, but other people feel that perhaps give chemotherapy first, shrink everything down, and then perhaps consider surgery. So there's different approaches. That's a personalized decision that has to be made between the patient and their urologist as well as their medical oncologist. Uh, there's no right answer for everyone on that one. Mm. Okay. And so obviously then you work closely with the medical oncologist when you have a patient like that. What is the thinking in terms of 
ne- you know, doing a nephrectomy in someone who had stage four disease. What is the, in terms of the biology behind it and, and the thinking in terms of the cancer and what it can do if the, if the organ remains in place? And what is the benefit of actually removing that organ once it has spread? So stage four disease, you know, by definition means that the tumor has spread beyond Gerola's fascia. Gerola's fascia is sort of the capsule that the kidney and the fat around it sits in. If it's only that, then that may still be curative, even at that stage. The cure rates are obviously a little bit lower than if it was a smaller tumor, but you may be able to remove everything if you do an operation in that case. If there is distant lymph nodes, then, you know, that, that makes it more complicated. But even if, and if it's not a curative operation, it still may prolong the patient's life because you may be removing a very large tumor. And if that patient is going to be treated, for example, with chemotherapy, there is a thinking that removing a big tumor allows the chemotherapy to attack the other sites that are involved rather than taking all of that treatment for itself. And so that may be beneficial if there's limited spread elsewhere in the body. Uh-huh. If there's widespread, then you know, the role of surgery just for the kidney while there's a lot of cancer remaining elsewhere is probably questionable. All right. And do you see stage four? a lot in your practice? I wouldn't say a lot, but yes, we do see them. Unfortunately, we see sometimes, sometimes we have to operate even if the tumor is widespread because they have symptoms. They're bleeding, for example, and you may have to stop the bleeding or it's putting pressure on some other organs that uh, bowel obstruction, things like that. So you may have to intervene either surgically to remove it or perhaps have the radiologist do an embolization of that kidney to stop the bleeding. So there are surgical options even in advanced cases. Mm-hmm. And so you spoke a little bit about medical oncology. Do you see quite a bit where you're having to shrink things down with, you know, treatment, systemic treatment before you actually operate? Or do you not see that too often? We sometimes do that. It's called neoadjuvant treatment where you mm-hmm. give, the, for example, chemotherapy before you do surgical treatment. And mm-hmm. sometimes the tumor may be... For example, it looks like it's growing extremely close to the liver or even invading into the liver. And we may give a round of neoadjuvant chemotherapy to shrink it down so that it's, it becomes more resectable. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a uh, possibility. I wouldn't say it's common, but mm-hmm. occasionally that's something we go to. The good thing about chemotherapy, I guess, is that there, there, we have a lot of new chemotherapy agents in the past 10 or 15 years. And I think... That's really helped with a lot of patients' quality of life. There are pills people can take now rather than having to go to an infusion center and get treatments that way, where you just take a pill every day. And um, actually, they're, you know, they're comparable or better than previous rounds, so with less side effects, which I think is extremely helpful for a lot of patients. I'm not really qualified to go deep into that. I think a medical oncologist can probably tell us more about it, but right, uh, we're right. lucky that we have them as colleagues that we can refer them to for that. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on. And from a radiation standpoint, so interestingly enough, you know, radiation oncologists, we don't typically see renal cell carcinoma when it is confined to the kidney. A lot of times we're involved when it has spread to other organs. And so we're treating, you know, bones and and things like that with palliative radiation if they're having pain or if it's causing any problems in terms of their spine, like with cord compression. And it works, you know, really well. However, you know, and when you have someone who has limited disease, we can treat them actually aggressively 
and not necessarily be focused so much on palliation, but actually treat them pretty aggressively, especially if they have, like I said, limited disease. One of the new things that's actually being not necessarily research, but actually being done is actually doing radiation therapy to the kidney in someone who's in, you know, inoperable small tumor where we're doing SBRT, which stands for stereotactic body radiotherapy. And so we're getting some, you know, pretty good results with that. One of the things with the kidney is that it's very sensitive to radiation. And that's one of the things that we have to, that, you know, historically we've been worried about and concerned about. But with stereotactic body radiotherapy, it's a way of delivering, you know, high doses, kind of like what we call ablative doses of radiation therapy in a short number of treatments. And looks like it's potentially going to become more prevalent when you have someone, like I said, with a small tumor, maybe inoperable and being able to do SBRT and take care of it that way. Have you worked with the radiation oncologist in that way recently? So, I'm, you know, I'm glad you brought this up because this is really interesting. And I'm aware of a little bit of the literature and I've heard people talk about it. I haven't had personal experience with it yet, but uh, I'm certainly glad to have it as an option for a patient who may not be a surgical candidate. Are there certain criteria that it's probably early and there's probably no criteria really established, I'm sure. This is not really standard of care just yet. Um, it sounds more experimental, but are there certain criteria that you tend to use in order to see if the patient's an appropriate candidate? Yeah, and it is in early stages, but size would be a good one for a criteria. And, you know, any involvement of anything adjacent would be, you know, something else. We would also have to be checking to, you know, their renal function. Obviously, if someone has a single kidney, that would be something that you want to be, you know, very cognizant of in terms of that. But it's looking, you know, like I said, and I'm sure things will evolve as it becomes maybe a little bit researched a little bit more and done a little bit more in terms of clinical trials or, you know, single institution experience. But yeah, it's definitely something that we can do. And again, when you're doing, so for instance, with conventional radiation therapy, when you're delivering radiation on a daily basis, Monday through Friday, and you're given either 180 centigrade or 200 centigrade per day, I mean, the kidney you really have to pay attention to how much the kidney can only tolerate about, you know, 2,000, 2,300 centigrade. And then on top of it, you have to pay attention to what the volume, how much of that radiation is getting to the volume of the kidney. But with stereotactic body radiotherapy, you're actually, you're delivering treatments in like three four or five treatments. And even though the dose is a little bit higher, again, it's a shorter it's a shorter time frame. So from a, a radiobiology standpoint, again, you're, you're able to deliver these ablative doses of radiation in a very short period of time and actually get cell kill, but spare some of the critical normal tissue. So I think the criteria is probably evolving and we're still looking at it. And at this point, I don't know all of the criteria, but it's definitely something that's really exciting and, and probably, like I said, going to become more prevalent. You know, that's kind of what happened with lung cancer, you know, stage one lung cancer in terms of inoperable patients and treating stage one lung cancers with, you know, SBRT and these ablative doses. You can sometimes do more than five fractions, but the true definition of SBRT is usually about, you know, within five fractions. So 
it's exciting. And like I said, we can do SBRT really in any part of the body. So if you have someone who has renal cell carcinoma and it has metastasized to like a vertebral body or, or anything like that, you can also do SBRT in that area as well. Uh, that's, uh, thank you for that. You know, I, I'm always interested in learning more, especially when it comes to kidney cancer. So, and uh, I'll stay tuned to hear more hopefully soon. Yeah, I know. I need to send you some papers, some recent papers that have come out, but it's pretty exciting. Anything else regarding renal cell carcinoma, kidney cancer? Well, actually, I do have a question for you. Let's talk briefly about transitional cell. How often do you see transitional cell? And what's the difference in terms of clear cell versus transitional cell? Right. So transitional cell carcinoma is basically a cancer of the lining of the bladder is a good way to think about it. And this bladder lining continues up towards the kidneys. So each kidney is connected to the bladder through a tube called the ureter. And it's like a long straw. And so the lining of the bladder, the ureter, and the lining of the inside of the kidney where urine drains is all the same material, transitional cells. And if you form a cancer in the bladder, of these transitional cells, you can form the same kind of cancer in the ureter or in the renal pelvis, which is the lining inside the kidney. And so sometimes it's not quite clear which one of these tumors you're dealing with. Is it a renal cell carcinoma, a typical cancer of the kidney, or is it a transitional cell carcinoma? A lot of times on the imaging studies, we can kind of see the location of the tumor and the characteristics, and, you know, fairly accurately, we can say whether it's one or the other. But really what it does require is to put a camera inside the bladder, and we can advance that tiny little camera all the way up the ureter, that tube, all the way to the kidney, and under direct vision, check it out. Look at it, examine it, maybe even take a biopsy of it, take a picture of it. And so that helps us figure out if it's a transitional cell carcinoma. And the treatment is slightly different, meaning that, yes, you do have to remove the kidney, but you certainly have to remove the entire kidney. There's no partial nephrectomy or piece of the kidney. And this is one that you have to not only remove the entire kidney, but you have to remove the entire ureter, the tube that goes all the way down to the bladder, and even a tiny little cuff of the bladder. So it's important to make the distinction because the surgery is different. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very good. Well, Sherrod, this has been fantastic. I mean, this is this is great. We don't tend to talk about kidney cancer as much as maybe we talk about breast cancer and lung cancer and prostate cancer. But as you mentioned, I mean, it's very, in the beginning of our discussion, it's very important. I mean, still going to be a significant number of people, unfortunately, diagnosed with this type of cancer. But overall, the good news, you know, for a lot of the cancers is that the mortality rate is, is decreasing. So that's a really good thing. But I think this has been, this has been great. And like I said, anything else you want to mention about kidney cancer and, and surgery and the role of you as a urologist? Yeah, I, I think, uh, first of all, again, thank you for having me. It's really been my privilege and I really enjoyed it and I learned during this session from you. So I appreciate that. I'll just say the take home is if you see blood in the urine, don't put it off. You know, sometimes you have a toothache and you don't go to the dentist for a while. You know, it's not one of those things. If you see blood in the urine, please go see your doctor. Please get referred to a urologist and have it checked out. And if you're still smoking, if you really want a few people in this country that are still smoking, 
please consider stopping. You know, I know it's not easy. It's extremely difficult. I totally understand. But there is help. And because not only for kidney cancer, but it increases your risk of bladder cancer, heart disease, and a whole host of other medical problems, that, you know, emphysema and lung cancer. And, you know, so it's just so critically important that we move away from tobacco and smoking in this day and age. And I think uh, you'll do yourself and your family a big service by that. Yeah, I agree. That's great. It's fantastic advice. And and I learned a lot from you today. So I'm glad that we were able to do this. So if anybody wants to find you, how can they reach you? Well, I'm at West Coast Urology, which uh, we have an office in Inglewood, office in Downey, California, and uh, an office in Los Alamitos, and a recently new office in Whittier. So, you know, we're all over LA. I'm in a practice with uh, four other urologists. Uh, we're growing. So West Coast Urology, and we have a website if you want to find us. All right. Well, thank you again. And I look forward to being able to see you again in person. <laughs> yes, hopefully without masks. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much. Okay, well, I really hope you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Ayanichi talking about kidney cancer. I think it was a great episode, and I hope you learned a lot. If you have any additional questions regarding kidney cancer, please check out the American Cancer Society's website. That's a really good place to go. And if you'd like to know more about me as the founder and owner of Centerpoint Radiation Oncology, please check out my website at www.centerpointoncology.com. Until next time, be well. Thank you for listening to the Cancer from A to Z podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you subscribed and left a review. And if you know anyone who could benefit from this information, please share the podcast with them. Until next time, I am your host, Dr. Rosalind Morell.